Welcome to Expositional Excerpts. I'm your host, Matthew Pilch. I pastor Grace Fellowship Baptist Church in Port St. Lucie, Florida. Let's dive into the Word. In today's episode, we are going to pick up the text at the end of Genesis 26. There's just two verses that we haven't talked about. That's verse 34 and 35. And this narrative here is going to go then from those two verses at the end of 26 all the way through chapter 27 and into the beginning of chapter 28. And the topic is the deceitful blessing. It was bad enough when Esau was cheated out of his birthright or manipulated out of his birthright. Now we're going to see Jacob taking the blessing that belongs to the firstborn And uh, he is living up to his name as a supplanter or a heel catcher. That's what that verb has come to mean. As we get into the text here, let's consider uh, as we prepare our minds, Hebrews chapter 12, verses 16 and 17, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. Of course, we're looking at verse 17 now, that it's talking about the fact that, yes, he recognized he lost the birthright, but now he's desiring to inherit the blessing, and he was rejected. There's nothing simple about this story. That is how it is recounted hundreds of years later. But when we go back and we look at it, we find that all of the participants are at fault. Think about it. Isaac knew of the words of the Lord in Genesis 25:23, when his two sons were born, that the older shall serve the younger. It doesn't matter whether or not he knew of the stealing of the birthright that took place in Genesis 25, 29 to 34. He knew what the Lord had said before they were even born. And yet the opening verses of Genesis 27 tell us that he called in Esau to bless him. He was wrong for doing that. That blessing is part of the birthright. The right of the firstborn is to receive the primary inheritance and also the blessing of the father. And now as we just read in Hebrews 12, 16 and 17, we're looking at that afterward part. Uh, afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing. You'll recall back in Genesis 25, 33, Jacob made Esau swear to sell it to him. So Esau, in agreeing to receive the blessing of his father, is breaking his oath that he made to his brother. So we got a lot of people at fault. It, it doesn't lie solely with Jacob as the heel catcher and the supplanter. Isaac is wrong. Esau is wrong because he's going back against his word. Clearly, Jacob is, you know, acting according to his nature. All of this is subsumed, as we will say over and over again, under the sovereign plan of God. Doesn't mean that God is condoning sin, but he is marvelously, divinely orchestrating all these things. What about Rebecca, the mother? So, Rebecca and Jacob, they're at fault because. They decide to take matters into their own hands. This is completely void of faith. I mean, what we see here in this narrative is an utter distrust and lack of trust in God to bring about what he had promised. And there's a lack of love. 
you know, to lovingly remind the family what the Lord had said. And these two get what they want. Rebecca helps Jacob obtain the blessing of the father, but at great cost. And at the end of this, we're going to see just pure vitriol and family hatred. And Rebecca will never see Jacob again in her life. I mean, it's truly, truly heartbreaking when you just stand back from a human perspective and and then you try and actually insert yourself and say, wow, if this was my family and this were happening here, this is truly a heartbreaking scenario here from a family standpoint, just from all aspects, not something that I would wish for, you know, to be driven away from my family and never get to see a loved one again because they have died and there's just so much animosity and hatred. It's just awful. Now, that's just kind of the summary statement of this whole section. Another theme is each participant's role to the blessing itself. You know, this is the blessing that God had promised to Isaac when his sons were born, saying the older shall serve the younger. But Isaac sought to bestow the blessing. Esau wanted the blessing. Rebekah heard about the blessing and ensured that Jacob got the blessing. Isaac unwittingly gave the blessing to Jacob. Esau was furious over having lost the blessing. And Isaac restated the blessing on Jacob in terms of the Abrahamic covenant. That will come later. And that's pretty fascinating too, to see how everybody relates to every aspect of this blessing here in this passage. Unfortunately, it cannot be said that anyone is upstanding in this, and the lessons that we learn from the text are not positive examples, but rather negative examples. Again, looking at Alan Ross, he says it this way, evil in its many manifestations. Here we have the disobedience to the oracle, the disregard to the oath, deception, and blasphemy. And that cannot be the way to discharge spiritual responsibilities. Discord, hatred, and separation consequently result from this mixture of good and evil. This is just not the right way to go about any of this. So how does all of this get framed then? Because as we get into verse 34 with the end of chapter 26, we're framing the narrative that is going to take place over the next chapter and the beginning of the following chapter. And it's framed this way, in terms of Esau's wife. So we have that at the beginning in Genesis 26, 34 to 35. And when we jump all the way to the end of, in chapter 28, the end of this narrative, verses 6 to 9, we now have another statement of, ja- uh, not Jacob, but Esau's wives. And if you look down there, you'll see that Genesis 28, verse 6. Now Esau saw that Isaac had blessed Jacob, sent him away to paid in Aram to take a wife from there as he blessed him and directed him, you must not take a wife from Canaanite women. Okay, fast forward. So when Esau saw that the Canaanite women did not please Isaac, his father, what does he go do? Verse 9. So Esau went to Ishmael and took as his wife, besides the wives that he had, Mahalath, the daughter of Ishmael, Abraham's son, the sister of Nebaioth. Yeah. I mean, it's like, oh, dad doesn't like this. Well, I'm going to go do the one thing that dad hates the most. And, but again, it's framed in terms of his marriage. Now, how does the text start? Verse 34 of chapter 26, when Esau was 40 years old, he took Judith, the daughter of Beri or Beri, it's Beri, 
the Hittite, to be his wife, and Basemath, the daughter of Elon the Hittite, and they made life bitter for Isaac and Rebekah. So he's already off to a bad start, and then the narrative ends even worse, and it's all framed with his wives. Nearing the end of chapter 27, Rebekah has this comment to make, I loathe my life because of the Hittite women. If Jacob marries one of the Hittite women like these, one of the women of the land, what good will my life be to me? And then Isaac has this admonition in the first verse of chapter 28. Isaac calls Jacob and blessed him and directed him, you must not take a wife from the Canaanite women. So everything here is framed. All of this is is just kind of framed, the structure of this in terms of the covenant marriage or lack thereof. Interesting to note, this whole narrative can be broken into six scenes, and that's how we'll approach it because it's a little bit lengthy here. And yet in these six scenes, Jacob and Esau are never together and neither are Rebecca and Isaac. It's just interesting from a literary standpoint. We don't read into that and find meaning in that, but it's worth pointing out that we don't see Jacob and Esau together. We don't see Isaac and Rebecca together explicitly. And it's pointed out that in four of the six scenes, we find the parent with his or her favorite son which highlights another lesson that favoritism is a dangerous, deceptive, and deadly practice. And we really shouldn't go there. I mean, if you can't learn how dangerous favoritism is from the story of Jacob and Esau, then you probably don't have a chance of ever seeing what favoritism is and how awful it is, because this is clearly a picture of that. So let us be on guard. If you have children, if you have nieces and nephews, you know, don't play favorites Uh, As tempting as it may be, it, it just will lead to trouble. So we've already looked at verses 34 and 35 because they set the structural uh, tone for everything as we just mentioned. So we're not going to go through that again, only to observe that Esau is marrying outside of his father's will. Uh, He's marrying a Hittite. Uh, Judith, the daughter of Beeri the Hittite, Basemath, uh, the son of Elon the Hittite. So two Hittite women, they made life bitter for both Isaac and Rebekah, not just Rebekah, it's both of them. And this really is against, you know, the Lord here and against his directives as well. And then of course, it's going to end that way later. And we also see this polygamy that is happening. This is still early on in the patriarchal portion here. This does not mean that in any way it is condoned. Neither is it condemned yet, but we're starting to see the the dangers of it. And we saw already by the time we get to Moses that it is condemned. I mean, we have that parenthetical, parenthetical statement all the way back in Genesis 2, if you'll recall, way back in your mind, uh, as in that section, which takes place before the fall, it said that the man was naked and his wife, and they were unashamed, and and then it has that parenthetical statement, therefore it is said that man shall leave his his, uh, father and mother and the two, and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. That is a parenthetical statement. I don't think that was said to Adam and Eve as the Lord joined them together. That's Moses making that comment on behalf of the people of Israel as he's giving them the law. So we have monogamous marriage prescribed by the time we get to Moses. But as we're continuing to work through the accounts of the patriarchs, 
we're not quite there yet. And just because it's prescribed by law doesn't mean that it's always going to be observed. Solomon has his many wives, his many concubines. David has many wives. And what we find consequently is that they end up leading them astray. Um, So there are lessons to be learned in all of that. So that's all we'll say about Esau and his wives at the beginning. And again, like I said, we're going to frame this around these six scenes. We'll just take these couple minutes here left in this episode and look at the first scene, which is the first five verses then of chapter 27. Let's take a moment and read the text. When Isaac was old and his eyes were dim so that he could not see, he called Esau his older son and said to him, my son. And he answered, here I am. He said, Behold, I am old. I do not know the day of my death. Now then, take your weapons, your quiver and your bow, and go out to the field and hunt game for me, and prepare for me delicious food, such as I love, and bring it to me so that I may eat, that my soul may bless you before I die. Now Rebekah was listening when Isaac spoke to his son Esau. So when Esau went to the field to hunt for game and to bring it, then she's going to dialogue and transition into the next scene. So we'll stop right there. All right. So in this first scene, we can kind of learn this, that God's people create tensions by attempting to set aside God's will for their will. And remember what we said here in the opening comments, that there's really nothing positive about this. Everything that we learn here is negative. Everybody's, everybody's at fault for this. Jacob's at fault. Isaac's at fault. We already see the fault of, of Isaac in this because he's directly going against God's revealed will for him. Esau's only all too willing to comply with that because he doesn't take seriously the loss of his birthright and is hoping that he can, the birthright is the blessing that he gets upon death, but he's already promised it and given his word, right? Now he's hoping to just kind of sneak it in there. Everybody's already, we're we're already off to a really bad start. Okay, so what it means is we, as God's people, can create tension by attempting to set aside God's will for our own If we know God's will for us, and we have many instances in the New Testament I would like to point out where he said, this is the will of God for you, your sanctification, your sexual purity. Uh, We have many such verses in the New Testament. And we're told as Christians that we have God's will explicitly laid out for us. And then we decide, no, that's okay. I'm, I'm good. I'm, I'll do something different. And I think I'm, I'm okay. Well, you're setting yourself up for tension at the very least. Uh, You may just have tension and may be able to work through it, uh, but it could be far more devastating than that even. Now, one of the sub-themes of this whole narrative is that our senses, as much as we rely on them, can lead us astray. This is very interesting. I mean, we start off the narrative with the declaration that one of the senses of Isaac has basically just almost gone completely away. His He's old, his eyes were dim so that he could not see, so he's blind. And it says that he cannot see. It's not just that he can see just a little bit, he cannot see. He calls his son to him while he has no vision. And of course, this is all again under the sovereignty of God, but we cannot rely on our senses. I mean, this is a sub-theme to be sure, but we, we don't just say, okay, well, I know this to be true because I experienced this. Well, as we're going to see, Isaac experienced stuff that he was quite sure was the real thing when it turned out not to be. Okay. 
And so they can lead us astray, especially when we rely on them. And here's the key point to handle spiritual responsibilities. We do not use our senses, our emotions, our experiences to discern spiritual truth. And I think back to the passage, and I don't have the reference off the top of my head, but we're taking every thought captive and putting it under subjection to Christ. Every thought. Uh, God has given us a mind and expects us to use our minds. And when it comes to spiritual truth, to rely on our senses, our sight, our smell, our touch, those type of things that are visceral, that are physical, that are temporal, that's a dangerous place to be. It, it really is. We do not rely on our senses to handle spiritual responsibilities. And I think this, by the way, is one of the areas that we can get in trouble with when it comes to Pentecostalism and charismaticism, the discussion of cessation of, of miraculous sign gifts. That's a, that's a discussion for another day. But a lot of that is predicated on the visceral, on the temporal uh, senses of sight and smell and touch, uh, those things that are sensory. And we're talking about spiritual aspects. And so there is definitely a connection to the modern day. Now, ironically, even the sense of taste on which Isaac prided himself gave him the wrong, wrong answer. I mean, Rebecca had not the slightest doubt that she could reproduce Esau's gastronomic masterpiece, you know, had she often smarted under this? I mean, had she kind of bristled under the fact that Esau was a good cook and Isaac would just boast about what a wonderful cook he was and she didn't like that? I mean, in a fraction of Esau's time that he's away, she makes this and is able to successfully deceive her husband. Uh, That's just incredible. The real scandal is Isaac's frivolity. His palate had long since governed his heart. That's, that's the real issue here is that he had long been governed by his senses and didn't even realize that he had done that. Chapter 25, verse 28, we'll see this later on. We won't get to it today, but Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game. And that, that's just incredible. So the details are important. They set the scene for the entire narrative. Isaac's age. He's old. He's at least 100 years old. We know this because Esau was 40 in Genesis 26, 34. We know that he was 60 when the boys were born. And so if we just do a little bit of math, we know that he's 100, okay? Uh, At least 100. Uh, What's the motivation for the blessing? Appetite. It's meal. Uh, It's food. It's he's driven by his senses. Again, his sense, his palate, all those things. It's, It's all visceral. Uh, The motivation for all of this is just because of how he feels. Uh, There's nothing, you know, spiritual consultation or anything uh, driven by his senses. Uh, Esau was driven by his senses when he sold his birthright. And we see this in verse four, bring it to me so that I may eat that my soul may bless you before I die. What's the intention, the magnitude of the blessing? Not just that I may bless you with all my heart, but rather that he might pass on his lifetime of blessing that he had accumulated. It is enormous uh, what is intentioned here, right? I'm old. I don't know the day of my death. Take your weapons. Prepare for me this, that I bring it to me so that I may eat, that my soul may bless you before I die. It's a huge blessing. It is the blessing. And malice. There's a question of malice here. The question is, what was Isaac thinking in doing this? And we can't answer that. Uh, all we can say is that he clearly wasn't thinking. 
Uh, or at least he was thinking with his appetites, or maybe in his old age, he had forgotten. And maybe we can try and give him the benefit of the doubt, but there's something terribly wrong in all of this. And so this does set up the narrative for us, but it shows us that God's people create tensions by attempting to set aside God's will for their own will. Well, that's all we have time for today. We'll pick up the text in the next scene in our next episode. This has been another podcast of expositional excerpts with Pastor Matthew Pilch. If you'd like more information, please visit our church website at gfbc.net.